Welcome to another episode of eMedCast. My name is Tate. I'm a second year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Michael Van Royen, Director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative at Harvard University, Chairman of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and author of The World's Emergency Room. We touch on lots of topics, including Dr. Van Royen's path to emergency medicine and how as a student and young doctor, he took steps to create a career that has combined emergency medicine with work in international relief, conflict, and disaster zones. Dr. Van Royen has lots of wisdom for folks at any stage of their training. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to eMedCast on iTunes and contact us at eMedCast.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of EMIGCAST. This is Tate Higgins. I'll be your host today. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Van Royen from the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Dr. Van Royen, good morning to you. Good morning, Tate. So uh, I'm holding your book in my hand here. Can you tell us what it's called and what it's about? Sure. Uh, So my book uh, released about a year ago is called The World's Emergency Room. Um, and it really is about the um, evolution of modern humanitarian intervention as seen through kind of my experiences in the field. Um, and the goal of the book is actually to parallel the evolution of emergency medicine as a field with that of humanitarian assistance as a, as a profession. Excellent. And I just want to go to the book right here and read the, the book jacket as a proper introduction. So Uh, Dr. Michael Van Royen is the co-founder and director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative at Harvard University, a professor at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and the chairman of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Over the past 25 years, he has served as an emergency physician in conflict zones and disaster areas in more than 30 countries, including Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda, Chad, Darfur, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Haiti, Iraq, and North Korea. Dr. Van Royen lives near Boston with his wife, Dr. Julie Van Royen, and their three children, Isabella, Jackson, and Alexandra. First of all, thank you very much for joining us today uh, and giving us your time. So I guess I want to start at the beginning. How did this start, or where did you start? Where are you from? Uh, So I'm from a small town in Michigan called St. John's, Michigan, a town of about 5,000 people. Um, and I grew up in, in uh, Michigan, um, and uh, I'm one of 10 children. And uh, then I went to, to college at Michigan State and, um, and sort of started to, to go from there. And at what point did you have an idea that you're interested in, in going into medicine? Um, you know, I always wanted to when I was a kid, I think. Um, and as I describe this in the book, too, I... I had some experiences as a Boy Scout, actually, um, that got me interested in medicine. Probably the most um, impactful one is that I, um, as I was in Boy Scouts, which was great for me, and I really appreciated the, the Boy Scouts at the time, um, I flunked first aid merit badge like three times because it made me nervous to do CPR. And so I vowed to myself that I would not be nervous about an emergency, and I became interested in not only medicine, but actually medical emergencies. 
Excellent. So a great kickoff to a storied career by failing first aid. And you, the your instructor or the tester for the Boy Scouts first aid was the local sheriff. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he was the local sheriff, so he made me nervous. So, uh, <laughs> so when I, I uh, did it and tested and couldn't get it right, and finally got it right, but then I, you know, I learned more about it, and then just became much more interested in in medicine. And so I was interested in medicine very early. And so, how did that progress? So then you went to uh, Michigan State for school, and when you entered college, did you enter as a pre med student? Did, had you, at that point, had you decided that this is a path I'm going to go after? So I was interested in medicine uh, very early and uh, went to Michigan State as a, as a pre-med. Um, and, uh, and then after Michigan State and uh, uh, my undergrad degree, I went to Wayne State in Detroit. Um, and I found Wayne State also to be um, really an excellent place for me in particular because it was inner city Detroit during a time when there was a lot of you know, urban violence and it was a pretty um, uh, big complicated um, social environment in Detroit and and the emergency department seemed to be at the center of all of it. So as a, a medical student, the minute I walked into the emergency department, I was, oh, I guess drawn to it and uh, and overwhelmed by it. And, um, and it was, I think, one of the easiest decisions in my life to the minute I, as a medical student, um, rotated in emergency medicine, I knew that was it. Like that was the field that I wanted to go into. And that would have been during your third year rotation through emergency medicine. Is that correct? Yeah. So right. Um, uh, you know, very much like many medical schools, the first couple of years were really spent in the books and uh, in class mainly. And then we sort of ventured out into the clinical area. And my first exposure to emergency medicine was when the EM faculty would teach the entire medical school class, um, ACLS. And I really liked them and liked the notion of responding to an emergency. And, um, and then during my third year, when I rotated in the ED as part of our mandatory rotations, um, I loved it immediately and felt sort of a kinship with the emergency physicians that were there. Many of us listening to this podcast are medical students or thinking about becoming medical students uh, and at different stages of training and are, as you said, the training is broken up into some major benchmarks where you move from the classroom and we take step one and then we move into the wards. Uh, During that path, before you found this exposure in emergency medicine, before you actually got into the emergency department and found what you were looking for, what was what were those early years of medical school like for you? Did you ever question your decision to go into medicine? Did you ever, uh, were you ever unsure about which direction you would go? You know, yes, to some degree. I mean, when I went to medical school, um, I found the first two years uh, hard in that the, the topic matter was um, voluminous and uh, the pace was fast. And, um, and I, you know, had to work really hard to keep up and, uh, and I did, and um, and so, but it wasn't nearly as gratifying as the minute you sort of step in and begin to talk to a patient. So, you know, I learned early on that that early investment in time, um, you know, didn't necessarily represent what my practice was going to look like, but it prepared me for the wards, which was, you know, important. Um, and before I discovered emergency medicine, I hadn't really been differentiated at all before that. And, you know, I began... 
of doing, you know, the sort of um, shadowing of physicians in the office at first, and then um, started in um, my internal medicine rotation in psychiatry, etc. And you know, I think like a lot of medical students, we liked I liked almost everything. Um, so I liked peds, I liked internal medicine, I loved surgery. Um, and so I, it wasn't a matter of not liking something really. It was a matter of just feeling at home in a, in a specialty. And so emergency medicine for me was really, uh, you know, I found my home in it. And I think a lot of medical students do the same with their specialty. So they're all, you know, they're drawn to something either by a mentor or by an experience or by a rotation they do, or just the realization that this is what they were really um, had thought of doing when they wanted to be a doctor. And, uh, and I think different specialties draw different personalities. And I'm built, I think, for emergency medicine. Do you, if, if you're going to describe the type of personalities that you have over the years or throughout your training and career found within, how would you, how would you quantify or describe the the home of emergency medicine as far as the type of people that are drawn to it? Well, the ED is chaotic by nature, especially big inner city emergency departments and, uh, and big teaching centers. So it is, uh, um, you know, what appears to be on the outside pandemonium and it's not, um, Oh, a comfortable place for many providers who want more order and also want kind of more and longer interaction with patients um, and a longitudinal relationship with patients, right? Somebody that feels like the what a doctor is, is somebody that sees a patient over and over and over again and is responsible for their long, long-term health. Um, and so many people don't like the environment in the emergency department. They don't like the chaos of it. They don't like the critical nature of patients or the, um, you know, what seems to be everyone running around with their hair on fire. Um, and so emergency physicians who are drawn to that are typically people who have multiple interests that are high energy, that like the diversity of practice, um, that like the intensity. Um, and many of them also end up having other varied interests. They're uh, an activity-oriented bunch, I think. And they don't necessarily mind the fact that they don't have an office that follows people longitudinally. Take us through years three and four of medical school, at which point did your interest in humanitarian work start to become part of your training experience? Or at what point did you start to build towards crafting that specialty or that part of your specialty? Yeah, so um, in in uh, year two and three, um, as I was transitioning to the clinical awards, I um I was in the medical library at Hutzel Hospital in Detroit, looking out the window and realizing that I hadn't yet found my thing and was somewhat um, disillusioned in my place in medicine. Like, you know, what, what was I going to do and would it really be impactful? And I, up on the ward, just admitted a patient in the middle of the night and brought them in the hospital and, um, and everybody was exhausted. And, and I just had a little bit of oh, doubt as to what if I would ever find my thing. And so I really started to read a lot more about um, other people's paths. And while I didn't really have any mentors, I, I found myself interested in hyper-vulnerable populations. In other words, the not just emergency patients, but the really the most vulnerable patients 
in the world. And I became interested kind of spontaneously and through reading in both global health and global um, crises, and in particular, disaster or war that creates the sort of profound human suffering. And, um, and, and so I began reading more about it. And, and then as I discovered that emergency medicine really fit my personality, I, I planned to try to explore this interface between Western medicine and emergency medicine and um, the humanitarian environment in war and conflict. So I, um, during my fourth year, I took after, you know, we, you sort of accelerate all your rotations and then head to the match and um, turn in your match list. And then after that, I took off for several months and spent the last uh, five or six months of medical school abroad. And at that point, I was sort of exploring if uh, where I wanted to go in terms of global disaster relief, global humanitarian service. So you got your interviews done, you got your match, uh, you have this gap that many of us will have where things are slower or where training is done and we kind of know what the next phase is going to be. And then you headed out to explore this direction of medicine. Was this a program that was formalized? Was this through school or is this something that you invented? Yeah, there was no program. You know, back then uh, there was very little in the way of um, an organized approach to getting medical students to do rotations abroad anyway. And it was, you know, predated the internet. Um, and so, you know, I became just interested in trying to make contact with people who worked in this space. So I sent many letters to um, people in the field and, um, and through a variety of scholarships and to raise some funds and, um, um, and contacts, I put together a, a tour essentially to, to look kind of in various areas in the world to see if um, I could explore this field of relief. Um, so I you know, ended up taking off and going to India and working for the, um, the Indian Red Cross during a disaster there and also a clinical rotation there. And then I went to um, Geneva, Switzerland to meet with administrative leaders and and technical leaders in the in the humanitarian environment and then i made my way to el salvador where i worked for some marino priests actually who were leading kind of a a grassroots social resistance movement against the government uh, during the war there and um and and through all of it it was very different experiences and very varied uh, but the thing that actually drew me to all of it was the concept of conflict creating uh, vulnerability. So I, that was sort of my at least interim plan was to come back to school, finish, go to residency, and then see where, where I'd go from there. And then you come back to school, graduate, and go right into residency. Was that What was that transition back like, or how did these first experiences in the international space inform or, or change your perspective? And what was that like to return? Uh, you know, I think it, um, you know, most of those experiences were not um, really practicing medicine. As a medical student, you go and you're still kind of a medical student, as it were. But, um, but it, it did validate that I wanted to do something internationally, but I still wasn't clear what that was going to look like as a physician. And I realized that um, I did have to complete my training and it, and it wasn't advisable. I didn't think it would be advisable to 
to quit and go into another field. And I really loved medicine, so I wanted to explore it. And when I was thrilled by emergency medicine, I couldn't wait to do it. So um, having matched, um, I went to Chicago where I trained and began my residency in emergency medicine um, with the full intention of, after completing my residency, to go abroad again and to further explore. But of course, during residency, you don't have a ton of time to do that. You're, you're running pretty, pretty hard. Were you able to keep any, were you able to keep one foot or one eyeball in this world of uh, the international space? Or did that stuff, you know, kind of sit on the desk and wait for you to finish that, your residency training? How was the residency experience as it relates to this diverse interest? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, when I first entered the program at University of Illinois, it was a four-year program with the latter year being a master's of public health. But then as I entered that program, they changed it, removed that fourth year and the potential for the master's. So it was a pretty intense three-year program with really no time to be able to take off and go abroad. So I had to delay kind of exploration of the field until after I got out of residency. So after residency and I trained in emergency medicine and got out, um, I decided that I was going to go overseas for a year and could just quit everything and put myself in storage and go for a year and really explore the field further. So I had to work for a year right after residency clinically in order to make enough money to pay my loans and, and all my bills and everything else and, um, in advance. And then I quit and, um, and went abroad for a year. So you finished residency, worked for a year, took care of some responsibilities, set yourself up to be able to take some time away from full-time clinical practice. Uh, and where did you go for that year? And what was that like? So I planned the in the intervening year after residency while I was working clinically in the community in emergency medicine and before I left, um, I planned uh, quite carefully this trip around the world um, that I would be a month rotation here and a month rotation there. And so I went to do a variety of things. I mean, I, I did, um, um, you know, health systems research in the UK, and then I taught um, medical informatics in Russia and St. Petersburg, worked in a mission hospital in Kenya, planned to work in... Um, uh, in uh, Nepal, uh, but before that happened, I got asked to uh, join a relief mission in Somalia, and so I did that, and and that's where I had sort of the real revelation that I wanted to be in emergency humanitarian relief, and that was really going to be my field. Um, I think the lesson in that exploration for me as a student, and maybe for other students that I advise here, is that you know, your path isn't going to be, and it wasn't to me very clear until I put myself in a position to gain some experiences, to be exposed to things that are different. And so to do things that are non-traditional, like take a year off, for example, back then nobody took a year off and, um, and they didn't sort of get a job and quit. Um, so to, to either in medical school, drop everything and go someplace just to explore or after residency, you know, take the time to, you know, go explore for a year or two um, 
places you in a position where you can see new things in front of you and therefore have a much better, I guess, um, method by which to make a decision, which is ultimately one of the most important decisions you'll ever make with your whole life. And that is what your, your real career pursuit is going to be. So I, I think the, you know, as I advise people, I think these early, the early years of undergraduate and then medical school and then residency, and as you can fit it in, and even those early professional years, um, really should be an opportunity to bust out and explore all kinds of things and talk to all kinds of people and look at all kinds of models so that you really can find your thing. Because I tell you, if you can find your one thing, your one sort of calling, and really know that that's what you want to dedicate your 30 or 40 years of medicine and your 30, 40 years of your career to, it's a gift if you can do it. If you can get it, it's fantastic because then you can let the other stuff go. So I know that nowadays you spend a lot of time teaching and advising and working uh, with students and you bring this wealth of experience and this path that you you know, kind of went out on a limb, as you say, put yourself out there to explore and have these experiences. Do you think it's, it's easier now, harder now? Like, what's it like for the current student? Uh, I mean, obviously, the same traditional pressures apply. And I think it's still uncommon for people to break away from the standard path. And I'm finding that there's I'm finding personally as a student that I want to do these imaginative, crazy things. But there's lots of pressure to stick to the known path. Uh, what advice do you give students in the current space or what kind of things have changed in the current space to allow this sort of experiential learning that, that maybe will put us on our true path? I, I think um, it's actually feels like it's far easier to, to explore than it was before because of the, you know, a number of features. One is that the, you know, the, the fluency of communication, I mean, again, I'll date myself because this was all before internet and email, right? So I did everything by writing a letter and sending it to Geneva. And so it is a different day. And, um, and the ability to actually communicate with people and gather information, you know, and, and assimilate it and look for the space of innovation where you want to be is actually far easier now, the easier nature of that makes it so that lots of other people are doing it, right? But, um, but in, insofar as you want to explore some innovation in the way that medicine fits with business or fits with law or fits with public health or humanitarian studies, the ability to do that is so much more easily obtainable. And, and frankly, schools and residencies really understand that people want to explore other options and other interests as well. So it, I, I would think that it's just far more acceptable and um, easily accomplished to um, create these new synergies and, and new ways of exploring the field. You talk about in the book, uh, you outline and and dive into lots of your international experiences and how these continue to form you. You mentioned uh, Somalia and how you talk about it in the book as, as that being a, a turning point maybe in your perspective about what your place in this space 
uh, could or should be. Can you talk about your experience in Somalia and your perspective going in or coming out and how that led to where you are today? Sure. So, you know, prior to Somalia, I'd become an emergency physician and had trained in a specialty that I loved and really liked being a, a clinical emergency doc. Getting into Somalia, I thought that the skills that I had acquired as an emergency physician would really translate to my work in the field. And, you know, much to my surprise, it didn't translate almost at all. Um, and it was extremely difficult, and I was wholly unprepared to work there. So as I got there, um, I realized that the skills that made me good in the field in Somalia were softer skills, like being organized and being motivated and being um, flexible and um, being pragmatic. And those whole, all of that really helped me adapt to that environment. But I also realized as I looked around that much of the humanitarian aid world and, and many of the aid workers that were there were also not prepared for it. They didn't know the culture. They didn't know the circumstances. They didn't know the, the sort of geopolitical push points and, and certainly not the, the attributes of human vulnerability, particularly around these really vulnerable Somali populations. So, you know, in, in one way, when I got to Somalia, I realized this is what I wanted to do for my whole life. But in another way, I realized that I was wholly unprepared for it. And matter of fact, much of the aid community was unprepared for it. And so um, I was a bit, oh, I guess, uh, humbled by the fact that I'd gone through all of this training. And frankly, I didn't know anything about this field of humanitarian aid. So I decided when I got back, what I needed to do was gain more experience, get my master's of public health or some degree that helped me acquire the lexicon of, uh, or the, the, you know, the, the parlance of the field, um, and, um, and really explore it in earnest. And I think that really sowed the seeds for me in, in that I believed that the world at that point didn't need another new international humanitarian organization. It just needed better organizations. So organizations like International Medical Corps and Doctors Without Borders and Save the Children, they were all great organizations, but they needed to do it better. They needed to prepare their people better, and they needed to have a way to integrate evidence. And that big revelation, which took some years after that to really gather, but that revelation was the thing that set me on my path to what I'm doing today. And tell me about the the creation of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Uh, first, tell us what it is and how it came about. So um, after my field experiences that I in while I was in Chicago, and then I moved to Hopkins and was there for seven years, and also mixed uh, being an emergency physician at Hopkins, which is a large academic center, um, and did a lot of field work at the same time. Blending those two, along with teaching at the Hopkins School of Public Health and developing a program there, gave me the sort of idea that I should be thinking much more broadly about the way academic entities like in, like universities, for example, play a role in developing and training humanitarian aid workers. So I was recruited to Harvard and I came here I came in to, as an emergency physician, but really I came to come and build the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. And, and the vision for HHI was really to create a humanitarian university. 
So a place where I could leverage the business school, the law school, the medical school, the school of public health, all the entities at Harvard. Um, but specifically within those schools, the, those entities that really focus on humanitarian issues in war and conflict so that I could create a structure for a research center and a educational center for humanitarian aid. Um, and so that's what I sort of set about doing and uh, took a little bit of time and a little bit of politicking at Harvard. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, as I built HHI, um, I also was working clinically as an emergency physician at the Brigham and I loved it and I loved working clinically. So there's always been this tension between being an ER doc and eventually a leader in emergency medicine and being a humanitarian and a leader in the humanitarian space. And that tension really was only balanced by trying to, you know, keep both jobs going, essentially. Um, and so I spent the you know, last 13 years trying to keep both jobs growing. There's a couple words there that I want to stop and explore a little bit, balance being one of them. And so you, uh, I like lots of emergency physicians that I think some of us look up to have, you know, more going on than just your clinical practice. And not to say that things are, you know, ranked in some order, but it, many of the, many of my favorite emergency room physicians, uh, their practice is informed by their outside interest or their outside research or their teaching. Uh, and so when you have this tension between your energy and attention for the clinical side, and then all these other passions or some other passions, how, how, how do you maintain that balance? How, how is it possible that you've been able to do these things? What advice do you have for as we add more to our plate, um, as we go through our training and we, and we're interested in other things, how, how can you be successful in multiple fields at the same time? Um, I think that there's some early decisions that I'll just, I'm, I'm not sure how to exactly answer, but I think that um, my general principle is that um, I haven't chosen either or. I've typically just chosen and, which means that I you know, find an interest and, and explore it and just figure out a way to make my current situation adapt to it so that I can explore it. Um, I think in order to do that, you have to think strategically about your time and your effort and... Um, and in particular, what helped me a lot is actually having a spouse that was really um, understanding because, you know, you don't go into a high intensity field in medicine or medical leadership or humanitarians, you know, humanitarianism, particularly when you have to travel to conflict areas without a spouse who sort of gets it and is supportive. So Julie, my, my wife, who's a physician also, um, really, you know, we went around that, that, that time after residency where I spent a year abroad, she went with me and she really got it. She understood that, that I want to be working in conflict settings. And so, you know, she was supportive when I took off and went to, you know, Bosnia for two months and go away to Somalia and Sudan and Rwanda and all those places. And, um, and all that time we're having little kids at home and she's got a job as well. And so it was really challenging to fit all that stuff in. Um, so I think that probably the best answer is to choose a partner pretty, pretty carefully that really gets it and is, you know, able to help accommodate a multiple interests, I think. 
And then also, you know, set priorities such that even though when you're away, um, you're away for some time. I was gone quite a lot in the early days. But when I came home, I was there for my family in, in a very personal, intense and, uh, and you know, present way. So that also has to be a priority. So I guess it's just trying to make everything that you do, place it as a priority, set expectations about, you know, the boundaries of it, um, and then try to fit them all together in a way that works. Understanding that you'll fail sometimes and you'll, you know, not necessarily accomplish everything that you want to because you're trying to accomplish many things at the same time. But then be attentive to the things that are important. And for me, the things that were important is make sure I maintain a really strong family and make sure I maintain a strong home base in my clinical department. And, and having that gave me the opportunity to explore. So while you're practicing and teaching and uh, working on projects, you're also traveling internationally to conflict areas, working in this humanitarian space, uh, and you spend a lot of time and continue to spend some time going back and forth between uh, what seems like two very different worlds. Um, can you talk about how those two spaces, one being you know, a city in America, emergency room, and the other space being frontline conflict zone on another part of the world, how do those two spaces or the experiences in those two spaces inform each other? How, how have those things made you better at both? Yeah, great question. I think the, you know, the, the actual topical matter of being a, a clinical emergency physician in an urban emergency department, uh, or in, in the case now leading an emergency department, has very little to do with being a, an organizer or a clinician in uh, a conflict area. And, um, and so that in many ways, they're entirely, almost entirely different careers because they, one is fully immersive here, but when you go in the field, it is so fully immersive that it's almost disorienting. In other words, you're, you're in it so much and it's so intense and so complex that it's a little bit easy to kind of not lose yourself, but really um, be so immersed in it that you, you don't bring yourself back home easily. And so the transitions are, are interesting in that when you come back home after an intense experience and, you know, you're working during the Rwandan genocide, for example, and it was really intense and to come back and to reintegrate into normal life after a few months in the field um, was hard. But I think the thing that made it doable and successful was that I had a great family and I had a home institution where I worked that I that respected and valued that work in the field as well. So I think moving back and forth between those two worlds was complicated and sometimes very a little bit disorienting. But at the end, having a strong home base at home and at home work really helped both free me up to be being effective in the field and also reintegrate successfully. So you talk about how the worlds and the, and the experiences in training are very different as far as 
the clinical world in the U.S. and and this immersive conflict zone humanitarian aid. What are some of the commonalities between a busy emergency room and managing medical humanitarian aid? I think the common, I guess I, w- I would phrase this, the things that um, allow me to apply one to the other are, as I mentioned earlier, this sort of sense of softer skills, in other words, organization and communication and motivation and perseverance and flexibility, which I can apply and bring back to my clinical and even administrative setting back at home. And so the very, those same skills are the same skills that, that help a professional work in a really intense and sometimes very dangerous environment in a conflict area. And that is being incredibly persistent in what you need to accomplish um, and also being very flexible in how you accomplish those goals um, is required all the time. And so people who work in the field that, that are not successful being the field of humanitarian relief are those that um, are inflexible or get stressed out or can't um, manage multiple different stimuli, both security issues, personnel issues, behavioral problems, etc. So working in the field that's that complicated, that pressured, was sort of great further training to come back and be, you know, working in an emergency department and be um, an administrator that has to handle a million different problems of varying levels of intensity and sort of time sensitivity. So those things really translated and self-reinforced with each other. And you entered this space through emergency medicine training. Is If a students are interested, if they're envisioning, as you did themselves, working in this international humanitarian space is specializing in emergency medicine the best way to get into it or what makes it a good way to get into this space? Um, There's two reasons that emergency medicine happens to be a good field for it. Um, And one is um, sort of the type of people that go into EM in the first place. And the other is just the nature of the field. The type of people that go into emergency medicine are those that handle um, multiple systems issues. In other words, in the ED, we're aware of not only our patients in front of us, but also the entire healthcare system, how full the hospital is, how many EMS patients are coming in, what's our place in the community, how do we handle transfers from around the system. So an EM doc by nature has to deal with systems issues. And that really translates well to the international humanitarian front because you have to deal with things like multiple technical problems in food, water, sanitation, et cetera, as well as health, but also in um, security and access and other complicated issues. So the first is awareness of being part of a system. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be an emergency physician to work in the field. Nothing about being an emergency physician specifically necessarily really applies to being a manager in the field. But the second more pragmatic issue is that emergency medicine is a scalable, uh, scalable practice. In other words, I can work half time very easily as an emergency physician in a community setting and have a lot of free time to do what I want. I can quit entirely, work abroad for for a year in the field, and come back to a regular practice in emergency medicine. Or I can, as I have done for many years, 
work and academic setting, but then, you know, pack my time together so I can go away for a while and then come back and resume my practice. So emergency medicine is really flexible. No, you pay the price for that flexibility, right? You have to work nights, weekends, holidays, and all kinds of funky hours, and that's not always easy for people. But it affords a flexibility that is really unusual in medicine. Now, increasingly, that can be the case with, say, hospitalists or staff surgeons or other people that have um, positions like that where their, their practices are scalable. So you don't have to be an emergency physician to go into humanitarian relief. I think a lot of people in humanitarian relief are or have been in emergency medicine because of the nature of our field. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that draws many of us who are considering emergency medicine towards the field, in addition to you know, the, the complexity of the medicine and managing teams and systems is the flexibility of, or the perceived flexibility of the professional life and the ability to, to sort of shape our professional careers. Uh, besides the pluses of emergency medicine as far as training a student in those things that we've talked about. Do you have any advice for, as you're advising students who are considering humanitarian relief as part of their professional practice experiences or trainings to try to get along the way as they're working through their, their medical training? Is there any other specific things that they can look towards or try to do to set them up for moving into this space? Yeah, a lot, a lot. I think, you know, so the, the field of humanitarian aid is a, is really complicated and it's like medicine. It's full of its own um, nomenclature and, uh, and ways of describing what it really is. You know, I think a lot of people are drawn to both global health and humanitarianism for a vague sense of kind of wanting to help. Um, and wanting to do something that is impactful and, and frankly, really very interesting. But that doesn't mean they'll like it or they'll be good at it. And so um, to be able to read more about what it is and understand what humanitarian aid really is and really does and what are the challenges and what do other people who are in the field, what do their jobs look like because they're all different, um, would be a good step in understanding if that's really where you want to jump in. Um, I think that, you know, I mentor many students who have an interest in this field, but, you know, a very small number of them really end up being in this field because it takes a lot and, and actually years of building. So I think, you know, building an experiential base by working abroad, anywhere abroad and in a very number of settings is good. And I think reading a lot and I think talking to a lot of people. After you can do that, then you can sort of think about how the, the, the choice in medical specialty, you know, very much like a choice in a spouse, is going to support that kind of work. Because, you know, choosing the right partner in life, very much like choosing the right medical specialty, will give you a sense of base and security from which you can take off and do this kind of work as well. Um, and so those are you know, both... I wouldn't say equally as important decisions. I think the spouse is probably the more important decision, but they're pretty important decisions. Can you tell us what, uh, so Harvard Humanitarian Initiative started in 2005, I believe, and has grown and changed. Can you tell us what it's up to or, or what that's turned into today? Yeah, so HHI has done, uh, been really fun to see it grow and develop. And um, in 2005, when I came here, it took about a year to kind of put it all together and, uh, 
um, HHI started and, um, you know, it started with like no money and just a few couple faculty. And now we have, you know, probably uh, 15 or so faculty, 40 staff, um, you know, a pretty sizable budget and a decent endowment that allow us to do our work in a little more of a predictable and secure way. Harvard Humanitarian Initiative is divided into two kind of big areas. One is our research enterprise, and the other is the Humanitarian Academy, which is all of our educational work. And between those two, the sort of types of research we do and educational programs, we seek to be kind of, a, as I said, a humanitarian university or a way that actually comes up with and promotes new ideas and new research and new thinking in humanitarianism. Um, and also finds ways to translate that to building future leaders in the field. Um, and it's gone really well. We're doing some really interesting work. Uh, uh, strangely, a lot of it is not medical at all. Most of it is in international humanitarian law and in accessing vulnerable populations and in building disaster resilience. We're looking at the role of technologies like drones and satellites and handheld data collection devices in order to improve humanitarian coordination. So a lot of our work ends up being non-medical and much more in the realm of, I guess, advancing professionalism. I think sometimes when we think about medical humanitarian aid, we inappropriately just imagine, you know, jumping on an airplane as a physician flying to somewhere and jumping in and saving lives with hands. And your book does a really good job of talking about how there's all these other factors that contribute to the success um, of a disaster response. Are there any particular things you know that are changing that students should keep an eye on? You mentioned drones and technology, and, and you talk in the book about agencies talking to each other. Uh, you also talk about how since uh, in the last decade plus the attitude in conflict zones has changed some as far as the threat to humanitarian aid workers or specifically being targeted. Uh, I know that's a lot of complex topics that I'm touching on in this question, but I guess the big picture is what what are a couple of things that as students, as we're looking at this world that we sh should be keeping our eye on as far as, you know, the, the need for humanitarian response seems to only be increasing with conflict and with displaced populations and with natural disasters, what are some exciting parts of the field that we should be keeping our eye on as, as folks interested in that space? That's a great question. You touched on some of those, uh, the, the attributes. There's, I think, um, the, the two parts of that. One are the big drivers of change in the humanitarian realm, and the others is the adaptive nature of the aid world um, as it's you know, sort of adjusting to those changes. You know, the big drivers of change are things like the global refugee migration crisis and the globalization of refugees and um, the, the erosion of neutrality that you mentioned. And so being an aid worker in a conflict area is, is in many ways as or more dangerous than it ever has been. And the nature of um, protracted conflicts like in Darfur that last for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and still create... Um, you know, vulnerable populations. Um, and, you know, the roles of climate change and urbanization and all, all other big features that really drive the aid world. The, the second part of that is how the aid world has, is adapting to those and the structural changes that they're trying to accomplish because it's, you know, for an or, a series of organizations in a loose confederation that try to work together, 
and then alongside donors and funders like USAID and governments um, and the role of the UN, it's a create, it creates a very mobile and complex interchange. And um, so anybody entering the world of humanitarian aid will have to contend with just the sheer complexity of the way these organizations work, the way they're funded, the way they deploy their resources, um, and you know, essentially our role in it as a physician or as a healthcare worker. Um, so that, you know, I think aid is getting more complicated. I think it's crucial. Um, and I also think that um, issues that are on the minds of all aid workers today are things like coordination and use of data and quality and um, um, trying to uh, transition to longer term recovery earlier. So there are big themes like that, that that will drive the types of work that people do. And in many ways, the role that a new person getting in the field will take compared to my role in the past will be more nuanced and more complicated. Kind of like medicine. <laughs> <laughs> on on a personal level, as we th- you know, many of us are drawn to medicine because we want to make a difference, because we want to help people, because we want to contribute positively to this complex world. How do you maintain this empathy for individual patients in the emergency department and also this empathy for these, you know, these populations on the international level, these refugee populations and displaced populations, these super vulnerable populations? How as a, you know, this is a personal question, what advice do you have to maintain that empathy without and still sort of protect your yourself without um, being overwhelmed by the needs that exist at, you know, just within one emergency department, the needs that exist there. And then when you, when you scale that up and start working and considering the needs of, you know, millions of people uh, that are displaced right now or, or that are super vulnerable, how as an individual physician, do you navigate that and stay I don't know, healthy at least, or sane or protected? I, I think that the, um, the peril in becoming a, uh, a, uh, an upper level administrator in anything is that you lose touch with the personal component of it. And so, you know, I think for me, the danger has not been losing myself or becoming stressed. It's actually... The tendency is if you're administrating large programs, you become aloof to the the actual individual needs um, and you don't feel them as acutely. So, uh, you know, running big international aid programs that pull you you to do large organizational issues or training means that you're never really taking care of a person in need. And running an emergency department as a chairman, you do lots of other stuff, but eventually you're sort of backing up so that you're not the one being the frontline provider. You're just managing budgets and systems and staff and all the rest. And so the thing that's been the, the most gratifying for me is just to be still be a doctor. And that is, you know, I, I still work clinically in the emergency department once or twice a week. And when I do, um, I value more than I ever have in my whole career these days of pulling up a chair next to a patient in the emergency department and and, uh, and talking to them intensely and personally, even for a few minutes, about why they're there and what their problems are. And what that does immediately is it 
gives me perspective and it makes me realize that I really love clinical medicine and love being a doctor and want to do the best for a patient like that. So I think the, the answer in all of this would be just never lose touch with the very basic thing that you're trying to accomplish, and that is taking good care of, a, of an individual, helping a person. Because if you can feel like you've helped a person, then you can back up and, and, and feel better about creating systems that do it in a larger scale. But you, you, you got to not lose yourself. And, uh, and I think by not being a doctor, I would lose myself or at least lose the whole point. I recommend anyone that's interested, check out your book. It was a great read. Um, I would love to, again, dive into it more, but folks can check it out. Um, where, are there any particular places we can find this book? Is it available everywhere? Uh, yeah. Well, and thanks, Tate, and uh, thanks for reading it. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you can get it on Amazon, so I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's out on um, paperback yet, but it's been on hard copy, so um, just, you know, Barnes Noble, Amazon, either in the store or online, um, should be around. And that's The World's Emergency Room, The Growing Threat to Doctors, Nurses, and Humanitarian Workers. Dr. Van Royen, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and for sharing some of your lessons and experiences. Um, is there anything else that you want to uh, add for the people? Any, any parting words for folks that are in the beginning of their training in the world of emergency medicine? Um, no, only in that I found um, both clinical emergency medicine and clinical medicine academic medicine, and then the exploration into other interesting topics like humanitarianism to, to make a rich career. And so, you know, you all as students and, and future residents and faculty, etc., work really hard and really long to um, acquire the skills to be a physician. Um, you deserve to have it be a passion and you deserve to have it be a life um uh, you know, the sort of a, a life affirming uh, pursuit. Um, it's not a job and it, it is actually, it's a passion and a career and it's a really interesting one. So um, I just encourage you to keep working to find the things that really drive you to be better and, um, and to explore some new areas because it's really, if you can find things that, that thrill you when you get up in the morning, then you're, you're in a good place.